You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey everyone, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. I'm feeling very, very fortunate to be here today after a series of travel mishaps, one after another after another. And it was one of those days for me yesterday when it is very clear that everything in life comes down to timing mm-hmm. because I was on one flight sat in the waiting room for two hours because it was delayed. I was trying to get home from Phoenix, Arizona, waited, 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 got on the plane, sat down, ordered a glass of wine, drank about half of it. Then the flight got canceled. And I got off the flight, called the wonderful Hayden of Hayden Helps, who we know makes travel miracles happen every single day. And ended up in a different terminal on a different plane into a different airport in New York, but am happy to be here and am very, very aware that the stellar clocks lined up in my favor to make that happen so that I could be sitting here and talking with Dan Pink, Daniel H. Pink, whose newest book is called When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And you know Dan. I mean, we all know Dan. We've read his books, the New York Times bestsellers, Drive and To Sell is Human. We've seen his TED Talks. But he's taking a slightly different tact with this book. And I'm I'm very happy to be here with you. Thanks for coming in. Gene, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad you made it here. I'm, <laughs> it doesn't always happen that way, especially these days with travel. Absolutely. To New York in the winter. Yes. Yes. So tell me why... When? What? I mean, you, I I love the way that you explore all of your topics because you dive into the data and the research. What made you want to take a look at the timing of our lives? You know, it was sort of a self-absorbed reason. The reason was that I was making all kinds of when decisions in my own life. Things like when in the day should I exercise? Uh, when should I abandon a project that's not working? I was making all these kinds of decisions, and I was doing it in a completely haphazard way. And so I looked around and said, you know, is there a way to make this in a more systematic, more evidence-based way? And there really wasn't. Then I started looking at the research, and I realized there's a mountain of research out there in all these different disciplines that can give us that evidence to make these when decisions better in our personal life, in our at work, in healthcare, in education, in all these different domains of our life. And so with the volume of research, how did you decide, all right, these are the things I'm going to focus on, this is how I'm going to cut it, and this is how I'm going to help people make these decisions better? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there was so much research out there. I had, for the first time ever, had to bring in two really kind of one and a half research assistants to help me track through it. So uh, one of my one of the people helping me give me an example, uh, I started thinking about how do groups synchronize in time. And then I said, wait, a second, I did some reporting and said, hmm, it seems like this sense of belonging is really important to how groups synchronize in time. And then I realized, oh, my God, there's like 
36 people who've devoted their whole careers to studying belonging. Can you tell me what they found? And then, But also, I think what's interesting is that a lot of the research now, a lot of the newer research, relies very heavily on big data, giant data sets. And I brought in a fellow who's now a PhD student at Duke because some of the math was over my head. So I had it with him. I'd read a paper and say, okay, explain to me the math. Explain it to me again. Explain it to me again. Yeah. Explain it to me again. And but but your your last point is is really the most important one. I wanted to make sure the research was credible, but I also wanted stuff that people could do something about. All right. And and so that's what I'm trying to do here is take this massive amount of research and say, here's what scholars know about these issues. Now here's what you can do about it. Okay, so let's start there. I have always felt like I'm inclined to do my best work at a particular time of day. You you separate people sure. into three different personalities or chronotypes. Right. So how do you know who you are? Okay, yeah. So the chronotypes is not even my my idea. This is a whole field of biology called chronobiology, chrono for clock, biology for study of life, that analyzes studies are daily rhythms. And what it shows is that about 14% of us are larks. We rise early, go to sleep early. That's but, me, okay, by the way. 20% of us are owls, rise late, go to sleep late. And then the rest of us are kind of in the middle, sort of third birds. That's where I am. And, um, and so knowing your, knowing your chronotype, which is relatively easy to figure out, is the first step in figuring out how do you find the right thing to do at the right time of day. So if you are, let's say, which is the biggest group, the larks, the owls, or the third birds? Third birds is easily the biggest group. Okay, yeah. so if you are a third bird, yeah. how do you – I, I just like saying it, third bird. Sure. If you are – Believe a, me, I went through a whole encyclopedia of birds to see is there something, a kind of a bird that would be not a lark and not an owl. And then I realized after looking at thousands of birds, no. So I said, third bird. Third bird. There, there, somebody will. Yeah, somebody will eventually yeah. make a cute little – emoticon and call it a third bird and there you go. So if you're a third bird, how should you be structuring your day? When should you eat? When should you rise? When should you exercise? When should you work? When should you have sex? Like, how do you know? Yeah. So what the research shows pretty clearly is that most of us, all of us who aren't owls, go through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery. Um, And those of us who are not owls go through it in that period. Peak, trough recovery. Now, for most of us, that peak is the morning, the trough is the early afternoon, and the recovery is the late afternoon and early evening. But what really matters here is that there's a mountain of research showing that we do better at certain kinds of tasks at certain times of day. So the peak, that is when we are better at what are called analytic tasks, heads down, focused, keeping out distractions, writing a legal brief, analyzing a financial statement. During the peak, that's when we do that best work. The trough is not good for anything. Some really bad stuff can happen in the trough, particularly in healthcare. Um, all kinds of uh, oh, like what? Oh my gosh! I mean, not to <laughs> not. To, I mean, there's a solution for this, but I don't want to alarm you. Um, just never let anybody you care about go to the hospital in the afternoon. Period. So if you look at um, anesthesia errors, anesthesia errors four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m. So you want that first procedure in the morning? Oh yeah. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I not mean, just. I so- mean, as a father, I've already, I've already, I've already, uh, last year had one of my my elder daughter get her wisdom teeth taken out first thing in the morning rather than an afternoon appointment because it involved general anesthesia. There's no question about it. Hand washing in hospitals goes down precipitously in the afternoon. Doctors right, more that's likely just disgusting. more likely to prescribe unnecessary bio- antibiotics in the afternoon. It's just a parade of horrors. There's a solution for this, which we can get to. Um, if you look at auto accidents, auto accidents. Once you take into account how many cars are on the road, the highest uh, period for auto accidents is between 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Uh, 6 6 a.m. Not a, a shocker, you know. It's like it's, people are drunk or tired. Um, the second highest is between 2 and 4 p.m. during this trough. It's the caffeine trough. It's the it's the three in the afternoon where you gotta have a big cup of coffee or something really sugary. You can have a cup of coffee. Better thing that you can do is take breaks. There's a whole uh, science of breaks and how important they are. So you got the trough, and then you got the then you got the and in the trough. Here's what you should do: do your administrative work, answer your routine emails, do the stuff that doesn't require a lot of brain power. Then. And this is, I think this is interesting. During the recovery, which for most of us is the early afternoon and late afternoon and early evening, that's an interesting period because our mood is higher than during the trough, but our vigilance is less than during the peak. And that's actually a powerful combination. So when we're in a good mood, but we're less vigilant, we're a little bit looser, it's a very good time for creative work, very good time for what are called insight tasks. And if you just you know, to the extent you can or to the extent your boss can just move some of these tasks to diff- these different periods, you're going to see an improvement. And, and there's research showing that time of day alone, just time of day, explains about 20% of the variance in human performance on workplace tasks. So it doesn't mean timing is everything, but it's a big thing. Well, I see it in my own life. I mean, I mentioned I am a classic lark. Uh-huh. I was bad in college because, you know, people stay up late and that right. was just not in my DNA. What time do you typically wake up when you don't have to wake up to an alarm clock? 5.30. Oh, my. So you're a serious lark. I'm, I'm yeah. a, yeah. Yeah. Mostly five. And it's just years. It's years of getting up for morning television. Now I've got an old dog. He gets up early. So, <laughs> you know, it, it just it just happens. But whenever I'm writing a book, that's my book time. Like, I get up, I go to the computer for two hours, I don't look at email, and I get it done. That I mean, that's how I wrote this book. I went to my office, which is behind my house. I went to my office in the morning. I'm not as crazy a lark as you, but, you know, I get to my office maybe at 8, shut everything off, and do my heads-down focused work uninterrupted, undistracted, until I always have a word count, until I hit a particular word count. And then I do my kind of afternoon, in the late afternoons, I do my interviews. I'll do talking to people who I'm working with, sort of brainstorming ideas about directions. And I think it, you know, it makes a world of difference. And I think the point here is that, you know, in general, we're very intentional in our lives about what we do, right? We have a to-do list every day. We're pretty intentional about who we do it with. Um, We like to practice and learn. And so how we do it really matters. But we put this question of when over there in the corner at the kids' table saying, oh, this is not as important. And it actually is. It makes a material difference to our health, to our mood, to our well-being, to our performance. I don't want to leave the night owls hanging. No. So they're the opposite. So how do they manage their days? So what night owls should do is is, is basically in the, in the reverse order. So they should do their more kind of insight work in the mornings. When uh, insight work in the mornings, they should they have the same trough as 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 the other 80 percent. And then they should do their heads down focused work late afternoon, early evening, even beyond. And you see this sometimes happening organically inside of companies where 
um, night owl computer programmers really basically start hitting their groove around 6 p.m. and then work 6 p.m. to 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 midnight. And I think the key inside of workplaces is that bosses have to be a little bit looser in helping people work at the times that are most valuable to them, and also be more intentional about scheduling. So if you're a lark, if I if you know. If, if, if I have an office full of larks who are good at doing their heads down, focused work in the morning, I should not be larding up their schedules with meetings right. or first thing in the morning. Put those meetings later in the day. I should let these folks do their peak work during their peak period. If you're a parent, I mean, you mentioned you're, you're yeah. a parent, you've got a daughter, I've got two kids. My kids are not necessarily on my biorhythms, right? So how do we get ourselves to manage a household oh, by man. these purposes? Yeah. Well, that's I mean, that, that's actually complicated by age. I, I have three kids. One is 21, one is almost 19, and one is 15. Let's talk about the 15-year-old. Okay. All right? Because one of the things that happens with our chronotypes is that there are huge effects of age. And between the age of about 14 and 24, most people see a shift literally of a couple of hours later. They become much owlier during that period of between 14 and 24. And so if you have a teenager who is having a hard time getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning, it doesn't mean that he or she is lazy. It means that he or she is a teenager. (laughs) <laughs> and and I think that you know the people my age need to be a little bit more em- empathic about that. It's not. It's actually a function of someone's biology. It's not a function. It's not a weakness in their moral character. The big thing here, though, and, and it, for, with with teenagers, is school starting times. I mean, it's. Un- I mean, I write about this a little bit, and I'm still shaking my, shaking my head every time I think about it. The American Academy of Pediatrics in 2014, issued a policy statement saying to America's school districts, please, please, please do not start school for teenagers before 830. All right. These are, imagine all the country's pediatricians linking arms and saying that. Well, and it's ridiculous because most school districts, they, they send the little kids in first. They No, actually, that's wrong. They don't send the little kids in first. They do the reverse. Most exactly. school districts, they send the teenagers in first and they let the little kids get all their beauty rest and send them in later, and it should be the opposite. It should be absolutely the opposite. And if you see the school districts that have changed the start time for teenagers, and we're not talking we're not talking like start school at 2 in the afternoon. We're talking about starting at 9.15 yeah. rather than 7.45. They see lower dropout rates, fewer car accidents, decreased depression, decreased obesity, increased scores. It's, cra- it's crazy. And as you say, the little kids, I mean, you, you know as a parent, I know as a parent, when my kids were little... Little kids are the larkiest people in the world. They're up at they're up at dawn. And it was interesting for our patterns is that in, in the course of our lifetimes, we start out as very strong larks. Then in our teenage years, we become very owly. And then we begin a path for the rest of our lives toward greater and greater larkiness. So the, the chronotype patterns of people who are like in their 70s are very similar to people who are four and five years old. Yeah, because they can't sleep anymore. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Let me just remind everybody that conversations like this one, and I am fascinated, by the way, are brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives, which means taking charge of our lives, which makes this a very important conversation. We all deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash front seat. You'll find more conversations like this one with Dan Pink. You'll find information about how to manage your money 
during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're a lark, a night owl, or a third bird, because <laughs> I just wanted to say that again. Again, that's fidelity.com slash front seat. Okay, I want to talk about money. Yeah. Was there anything that came out of the research that talked about our best time to deal with our finances, whether we're spending or investing, you know, making rational decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great, it's a, it's a great point. There, there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of elements of this because I looked at not only timing in the course of a day, but how do midpoints affect us? How do beginnings affect us? How do endings affect us? How does even the way we think and talk about time affect our behavior? So let me give you a couple of examples of it. Number one is that if one is going to make financial decisions, do it during the peak. It's not anything where you, you don't want to be too creative in making your financial decisions. You want to make those kinds of decisions during your peak where you have, you're good at doing analytic tasks. Better off, as you've known, as you've written about for years, you're better off not even making the decisions. You're better off just making everything as savings or whatever automatic. I mean, changing the choice architecture obviously is a hugely – I mean, you, you, know, you know this already. Changing the choice architecture of our finances is, is enormously important. There's one aspect of it, though, when it comes to savings that is quite fascinating, and it's this. Um, why don't people save for retirements? And, and, and I think it's because we can't see that far down the road. Exactly. Okay. So this is so it's how we process time as part of it. And there's some really interesting research on this. So one of them is completely weird. One of them has to do with the studies of this is a, uh, done by um, Keith Chen at UCLA. Uh, it's a study of people speaking different languages. Some languages have very clear markers between the future tense and the present tense. Like the, the English has that. So right. I will go to the store means something different from. I'm going to I'm I, I'm I'm at the store. I go to the store. Other languages, the boundary between future and present is looser. It has to. Do, it's more contextual. It's not as clearly marked. So linguists call these strong future tenses and weak future tenses in these languages. Now here's where it's weird. People who speak weak future tenses, okay, not like English, are more likely to save for retirement. So Japan. Right, I mean China, exactly. China and Japan. They, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and and it's so freaky that they that the scholars have actually looked at this because it seems preposterous. Like the language you speak will affect your savings behavior, and what it has to do with is is the way we conceive time. When people don't have a clear marker between present and future, they feel like they're saving for themselves more than they're saving for a stranger. Where there is a clear marker, they say, well, wait a second. That's a totally different space. And at some level, it's a totally different person. One other thing, Hal Hirschfield at UCLA has this incredible research where what he did is he showed people age-advanced images of themselves. And when you show people, if you show me, here, here, Dan, here's what you're going to look like when you're 80. You show me that picture, I'm more likely to save for retirement because there isn't this clear divide between the future and the present. So even how we think about time affects our financial behavior. So are there phrases? I mean, looking at a picture of yourself yeah. aged, and I've done this, it can be, it's it's very scary. Um, I, I asked at one point, I said, can't I just look at a picture of my mother? She looks like me. And they said, no, you got to look at you. So not a pretty picture. But what can we do with the language to get ourselves into that mindset? 
first of all, I think, I mean, I'm preaching the from the Chatsky hymn book here is, <laughs> is, is automation. All right. Yeah. Anything you can do to make it to make it automatic. So don't make decisions. Make it automatic. The other the other thing that, that you can do, though, is you can begin you can um, it, if you more consciously think about yourself in the future. All right. And, and actually try to picture yourself at age 80, which is something we don't necessarily want to do. Right. But stop and think there. So I think about, okay, you know, what will my wife and I be like, look like? What will our experiences be 30 years from now when we're 80? That could play a role in helping us think more uh, intelligently about the future. I know there were some findings in the book, and I just think this is fascinating. And I, I think these are the ones that came from your big data set, but on things like when is the right time to get married? Ooh. Can we just talk about yeah. that a little bit? I mean, that's amazing that you can say yeah. you're going to be less likely to split up if you do it yeah. here. Yeah, it's on the margins. You know, it's not like, it's not like, you know, it's like, it's like anything. It's like you can make a better prediction. You can't make a foolproof prediction. It's like, oh, that person got married at age 37, so they're going to get divorced in 18 years. You know, you don't say that. Um, one of the big effects is, um, is education, um, and particularly even if you control for the level of education. And there are huge effects now where a much lower divorce rate among people with more education. Um, but even if you control for education, getting married after you finish your education, no matter what the education level is, you're more likely to stay together. Uh, there's some evidence from the University of Utah on getting married before 25, you run the risk of higher divorce. Getting married in the sweet spot between about 25 and 32, less likely. And then each year after 32, the odds increase a little bit. Again, we're talking probabilities here. We're not talking anything determinative. Uh, one of my favorites, because it has to do with finances, is the research out of Emory showing that there's an inverse relationship between the amount of money you spend on your wedding or your engagement ring and the likelihood of the marriage lasting. That is, the more you spend on the wedding and engagement ring, the less likely the marriage is to survive. Every parent in this audience is going to be really yeah. happy to hear that. But you know what? It actually goes to a lot of the stuff that you've talked about. Because we say, because like my first instinct when looking at this research, saying, oh, that's because materialistic people don't really love each other. That's not what it was. You know what it was? Debt. It was, exactly. That's exactly what it was. It was, <laughs> it was. it was debt. People went into debt to have a fancy wedding, and then so they start their marriage deeply in debt, and that's a huge stressor. Oh, unbelievable. Well, it's fascinating. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for, for having your time. me. The book is called When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan Pink, please come back. I will absolutely come back. And Kelly has joined me in the studio. You know, when I was following up on the night owls, I was thinking about you because I will get up in the morning and <laughs> I will have emails that I deal with at 6 a.m., but you've written at 11 o'clock at night. Yes. And not because I'm a slave driver, by the no. way. No, no, no. This is definitely by choice. It's me. But I think I'm actually a third bird. You do? I do. Yeah, because I will wake up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at 6 a.m. some mornings. So I think I'm already shifting back. I think I was definitely a, what is it, a night, owl? Night owl. A night owl in that span of whatever teen years to 24. And I think I'm now getting more of my lark ways as I'm getting older. Interesting. At 27. Yes, yes. yes. Kelly had a birthday, yes. everybody. Happy birthday to Thank Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. But no, I think I'm definitely a third bird. 
And I am guilty of sending you very late night emails. Okay. They're like little presents yes. in my inbox Good when morning. I wake up. Good morning. Please answer these questions for me. All Speaking right. of questions. What do we have? Our first question is from Angelia. She writes, my husband is nearing retirement age and we recently found out that his pension fund will be insolvent by 2025. We have a savings account with about $35,000, but we do not have any additional money set aside for his retirement. My husband is planning on working as long as he can, but I'm wondering what he can do to catch up so that he can retire in 10 years. I am 22 years younger than my husband, so I will be bringing in a reasonable income as a teacher when he retires. Any suggestions would be so appreciated. Yeah, so my big suggestion is get yourself to a financial planner now. And that's because although it's completely disheartening to think about his pension fund in this way, At this point, there are things you can do. You can make a very active decision on when to tap Social Security. You can decide that you're going to downshift your lifestyle now so that you can put away more for later. You can structure your investments so that they're a combination of investments for growth, but also some investments that will guarantee you a paycheck in retirement. There are a lot of different ways to look at this, and there are a lot of moving pieces, including your current spending and your current and future income. And the big outlying missing piece is that plan. And I wish I could sketch it all out for you right here on this podcast. It's a much more in-depth endeavor than that. So I would say find yourself a planner, sit down, make sure this is somebody that you think that you can work with over the long term. You can ask friends for recommendations. You can ask colleagues for recommendations. Our sponsor has many planners. There are associations of planners like NAPFA and the Financial Planning Association. So find yourself somebody that you like to work with and go through the process of developing that in-depth plan. I am going through this process right now, not for myself, but for my dad. Ah. Yes. On our recent family vacation, he's like, should I get a financial advisor? And I said, if you're asking, the answer is probably yes. That's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think this is one of those things where if you feel like you need help, you need help. Mm -hmm. And help doesn't have to be in the form of somebody that you see four times a year. Help could just be somebody who takes a look at the plan that you've drawn up yourself and says, this is good, Mm -hmm. this needs to be tweaked, fix this, come back and see me in a year. Yes, he wants someone, just an outside perspective, to say, like, you know, you're heading in these right directions, but this direction with this particular account might not be the right one. Yeah. Yeah, and I think around the new year, beginning of the year, tax time, you know, these are really good points, inflection points, to to sit down with your advisor. This is, I always have a call or a meeting with my advisor around this time of year to just say, okay, I was on track. Am I still on track? What do I need to change to get me back on track? And I find it really, really helpful. Maybe I should do the same now. You could. I should, maybe. 
thing. I'll think about it. And we'll do one more from Liz. I'm a single mom by choice with a six-month-old. I've been back at work since early October, but the company I work for is in serious flux. The only info you'd probably need to know is that I work remotely, usually from home, but often travel to clients or corporate headquarters. Since I had my baby, I have almost done no travel. Now that company is in flux, I may have to choose between a new role that requires tons more travel or taking severance. Either option poses considerable personal sacrifice and a big change to my current lifestyle. If I were to choose severance and start looking for a new job, I'd probably try to find one where I live, not work remotely or travel, and therefore would likely have to take a big pay cut. How do I calculate how big of a pay cut I can afford? I own my home, but it's a decent-sized mortgage with monthly condo fee. I have to pay for daycare, and I have some student loans. After that, it's regular cost of living, utilities, food, clothing, etc. What's the best way to think about how much salary I really need to at least maintain my current situation? So I think this is very similar to the conversation that I find myself having with couples before they have a baby when one of them wants to stay home. And that's you road test it. I mean, the easiest way to figure out how little you can live on is to live on less, to to physically do that, to go through the process where you decide, okay, this is a month where I am only going to spend what I absolutely have to spend. The one thing to be very careful of, don't shortchange your savings. Make sure that you budget in saving at your current amount. And we like to see people saving 15%, including matching dollars from employers. The other thing I would say is go ahead and look for a job before you make this choice. I mean, it sounds as if you may have a little bit of a window before you have to do either one of those things. You should be actively looking and actively looking for a job. You should be out there talking to people, networking. Don't set yourself up to believe that you have to take a job that pays less. You may be surprised on the upside that other people find your skill set more valuable than you happen to think that it is. So I would say don't go in negative. You know, go in with guns blazing. I've been doing a lot of research on women and under-earning for a new book that I'm working on that everybody will hear more about in the months to come. But often we talk ourselves into believing that we are not worth these salaries. We are worth these salaries. So you go in there and you ask for it and see what happens and let us know. I'm so happy you said under-earning because I recently just read Defining Decade by Meg Jay, and she has a TED Talk on it that is very popular amongst all of my girlfriends that apparently knew about her before I did. But I read this book over my vacation, and she has a whole chapter dedicated to under-earning and how women are more susceptible to it just because of how we handle competition, the way we think about competition. Right. When we think that if we win, somebody else has to lose. Mm -hmm. And that's not a comfortable feeling for us. But it's also not true. You know, we can all win. We can be the rising tide that lifts all of our boats simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So you go in, you ask for that money, and let's see. 
Love it. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Kelly. And thanks so much for all the questions. Please keep them coming. Go to our website. It's jeanchatsky.com. On the podcast page, you'll find a nice little box where you can ask questions. And now it is time for our weekly Thrive segment. In addition to spending time with loved ones over the holidays, did you spend a little too much money on them? Or if we're being honest, on yourself? We've got a new report from the folks at MagnifyMoney.com, and they have calculated that the average American racked up $1,054 in debt over the holiday season. One particular reason that it's bad news is that it's 5% more than last year, and more of it went on high interest rate credit cards. So if you're one of those consumers with that debt, here's a little bit of math to just wake you up. If you only make a minimum payment on that debt, you only are paying $25 a month, it would take you until the year 2023 to pay down the balance, assuming it's on a 15.9% card, you'd pay $500 in interest over that time. So clearly, we want to get out of debt much sooner than that. A few things to do here. First of all, stack the debt. Make sure that you are paying it off by the avalanche method. This is my preferred way to pay off debt. You want to pay off the highest interest rate first. Throw all your extra money against that debt. Get rid of it. Make the minimum payments on the rest and then move on to the second highest interest rate debt. Next, reward yourself for doing the good job of paying off those debts. If you've got $1,000 in debt, every time you pay off a particular increment, maybe $250, give yourself a little reward. Give yourself a little boost so that you will keep going. And finally, remind yourself that every cent counts. Tiffany Aliche, who is founder of The Budget Nista, uses a strategy where she put every additional piece of unexpected money, money she didn't expect to receive, money she didn't expect to get, like, aha, a tax refund, toward her debts. And it enabled her to pay down $35,000 in debt over three years. Incredible incredible. And you'll be out of debt in absolutely no time. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Dan Pink for a great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. And while you're doing it, if you've got 30 seconds, just take a minute and leave us a review. Reviews are important because other people read them, but we also want to know what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. We tape our show at CDM Studios, and our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next time. We'll be back with the wonderful Mika Brzezinski of MSNBC and creator of the Know Your Value franchise. Hope you have a great week. We'll talk soon.